WAER Sports proudly presents the Ostrom Avenue Podcast. And Syracuse has knocked off NC State 24-9. The students rush the field. The Orange are bowl eligible in 6-0 for just the third time in the last 87 years. Syracuse stops out the Spiders. It took overtime to do so, but the Orange claim the first semifinal of the Empire Classic 74 to 71. Breaking down the orange every week. Syracuse's defense dropped by 20 spots on Ken Palm last night. So that was really embarrassing. I think Malik Brown should be getting more minutes. He shows the energy. I think he brought energy when he came to the floor. And talking with the industry's experts. We're joined by a very special guest and a friend of the podcast, Brent Axe. We now have the pleasure of being joined by David Thompson from the USA Today Network. We're joined by a very special guest. It's former SU men's lacrosse star and current ESPN analyst, Paul Carcaterra. It's the Ostrom Avenue podcast from WAER. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ostrom Avenue podcast today, Thursday, January 4th, recording this in the afternoon. I'm not sure if you can still say Happy New Year uh, per one of my idols, Larry David. He says after January 3rd, you can't say Happy New Year anymore. Some say within a week. I don't know. It, it, it's up for debate. My name is Ethan Frank, and we're always, as always, we're brought to you by Empire Hearing and Audiology here today to debut a very new segment on the Ostrom Avenue podcast. Excited to bring it to you. And as always, joined, joined by Jordan Leonard and Hudson Ridley. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you, you bring up whether or not you can wish somebody a happy new year. And I went to go get a haircut today, and, and the, the person that mans the parking lot wished me a happy new year. So I think she goes by the a week rule instead of January 3rd. So it's a great happy new year. Just got a haircut. You look good, feel good, play good. So I think uh, I'm going to have some great takes coming up. Hudson, what, what are your new year rules? Uh, I've been bouncing all around the map here so far. Uh, so I haven't had enough time to tie down my rules if I had to have rules, I would say uh, I would say the second. The second is as long as you can go. Wow, I, I want to be even more one day. Because at that point, once it gets to the third, you're in the year. And once you're in the year, you, you just have to stay in that year. You, you're, so you're Hudson, in, in school, yeah. how long how long did it take for you to con- firmly write the next year on like a paper? It took me a while. That that has nothing to do with my cognitive functioning. That just has <laughs> something to do with me as a person and my set of beliefs. But in terms of writing it on a piece of paper or when we edit at certain places, having to write down the day, it takes me about a month to really remember that this is the this is the year. So I would go even farther. Then. Wow. Uh, yeah. that, that's impressive right there. Uh, yeah, you've been all over the place. Uh, I'm I'm still home in Connecticut. Uh, this is our second episode of 2024. Jordan is still home in Florida, and you're now in what Atlanta, Hudson? Uh, yeah, I'm in Atlanta now by the airport. Uh, we went by Georgia Tech this morning. I gotta say, look, I know ACC rival and all that, and you're not supposed to love Georgia Tech. I'm all in. I think Georgia Tech wow. is a fantastic place. Well, you I'm should go start right a podcast. In the city. You should go start a podcast with Andrew Sullivan, and you guys can talk about how great Georgia Tech <laughs> is. Hey man, hey, I I texted him too because Andrew Sullivan is one of our uh, WAR friends. He uh, lives in Atlanta, big Georgia Tech guy. I asked him food recommendations, and he came up with about a paragraph for each for five of them. So uh, wow, 
Yeah. That sounds pretty he, on. He was ready. He was very so, ready. So speaking of recommendations, speaking of takes, that is what we're doing here today. We are going to debut uh, a, a episode that, you know, we'll, we'll probably have, I would say, you know, maybe every few weeks, once a month or so. We're going to call it the Ostrom Take Factory. And today to debut the Take Factory, all three of us, we're each going to go around and give three takes. And we will have a maximum of six minutes to discuss said take. We've each prepared three of them. We have not shared our takes with anyone. So I guess it is possible that we could have the same take without telling each other. Um, and, and we'll do a little discussion. If you've been listening to us throughout basketball season, uh, it, it is quite evident that there are some things we don't agree on and there are some things we are agree on. So we'll, we'll see what happens today. I'll start, then we'll go to Jordan and then Hudson and, and we'll rotate around. Um, guys, we, we good to, we good to go here. I'm good to go with number one. Oh, I'm ready. Yes, sir. Go right. right ahead. My first take, I wouldn't, I think this is the most likely take that, that someone else would have here. Despite the struggles of a certain few players in Syracuse's starting lineup. I do not think that unless there is an injury, any changes will be made to the starting lineup. And let me give you a few reasons why. Uh, will be or should be? What do you, will be what? There will, will not be, be. Because there's there a will, difference. Or should be. Or should be. There any will not be any changes okay. to the starting lineup unless there is an injury. Unless there is an injury. Um, or... A, a departure from the pro unless some crazy circumstance, there will not be any departure from the starting lineup for performance reasons. Um, and let me tell you why I've, I feel like I've said a number of times that you can see there are things that Adrian Autry does that Jim Beheim did. And there are things that Jim Beheim did that Adrian Autry does not do. And I do believe one of those things is that Jim, Jim Beheim was very consistent with his starting lineup. Rarely ever did he make changes in season to his starting lineup, unless it was absolutely necessary or things were just so far off the rails. And even after that performance against Duke on Tuesday night, and we can weave that game into our points if you want a, a good first half, not a great second half, It, I, I just don't see this starting lineup changing. And, and I'll, I'll give you a few reasons why. Number one, it will only hurt the confidence of the guys on the bench because, or, or of that will be, that will go to the bench. Because Chris Bell, it is pretty clear, he is already a guy who like wears his emotions on his sleeve. And if things aren't going well, it's not going well. If he gets benched and goes to the bench, I think that gets even worse. I don't think Justin Taylor is, is to that same extent. But I think the negative of putting someone on the bench is outweighs the positive of bringing someone from the bench into the starting lineup. Um, that's my first point. And I also think like, the bench is successful because they come off the bench. You're playing against the second unit sometimes of other teams. Uh, you're not playing in starting laps. You're providing an energy boost for those guys that are on the floor. Um, the the only possible change I could see is if you're going against a lineup with size, starting Benny Williams at some point because he's three inches taller than Justin Taylor and we saw what happened when Justin Taylor had to match up with Kyle Filipowski in the second half on Tuesday. That is the only possible change I could see if Benny were to develop some consistency. Otherwise, I just don't see it in terms of a performance-related starting lineup change. And I mean, I, I'm really only talking about the forwards here. Like you brought in Naheem McLeod to be the starting center. And if you're not going to start him, you might as well not play him at all. So I, I think yeah. you continue to start him as well. Yeah, he, he um, provides nothing else but being a starter. 
Yeah, we'll, Not we'll see really. about that. I, 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 it's a big difference between should be and will be. Will there be? I don't think there will in the next couple of games at least. But if Syracuse kind of loses a couple of games, then there will be a change. Should there be? I think there should be a change in the starting lineup just because Syracuse, like, sure, it doesn't matter who starts. It matters who plays more minutes. But, like, if you're getting out to slow starts like they did against Duke, they were down 7-1 to one within the first three minutes. Against teams like a quad one team that you're trying to get a quality win against, especially on the road, you can't get off to a slow start. Like, you need to start fast. Like, sure, Peter Copeland, Malik Brown coming off the bench, Benny Williams, they bring energy, they revitalize the team, and that's when you can go on runs. Why not start that from the opening tap? It's one, two. It's not even like Nahima Cloud's winning the opening tap. But why not start that from – the first whistle. There's no reason that you have to wait five minutes to put them in the game. And that's why they're so effective. And two, on the point you made about Chris Bell, I understand that, but like if he was a freshman, I would get it a little bit more, but like at, at this point as a sophomore, it's like grow up. Like if, if, if you're not hitting shots, you're not effective. Like if you're not hitting a three ball, you're not playing amazing defense. You're not a two point shooter. You don't shoot twos one. And like, there's there's no value for you being on the floor to start the game if you're not going to hit your first three and then you're not going to hit any threes like I know I know that's a game by game basis like if he hits the first one next time it could end up being a five or six you know three point made night for Chris Bell because he can have those but like if he's not hitting threes there's no reason for him to start so I think there there should be a change to the starting line not anything crazy. I would say maybe Benny Williams comes in and plays the fours. I just tailor down to the three, um, which I can allude on later. But like there, there won't be now. I think for BC next week, but there should be in the near future. Yeah, I I actually have to side with Ethan though on this one. I think the only change that I could see being made, and Jordan brought this up, is having Justin Taylor move to the three and having Chris Bell on the bench with Benny Williams starting. I think Chris Bell just needs to have that leash be put on him, that Jim Beheim type leash. Because if he misses one or two in the beginning, it's not like he's shown, okay, he's going to get hot again. If he misses one or two, he's missing eight, and he's taking eight. And it's not like he's going to decrease the amount of shots he's taking. So he needs that leash. But I will say, where Jordan, you were like, the guys aren't just coming off the bench or the guys that are coming off the bench don't aren't just effective because they need those five minutes of the game to go by. I would push back on you on that because what, what Ethan said of the fact that they're sometimes playing against the second unit, but after five minutes, like Autry said, they're trying to win those four minute spurts after five minutes. Some of those other guys are getting tired and that's where Malik Brown shines because he's got so much intensity, not necessarily emotionally, obviously, but in his play style, Quadir is good because he has that intensity in his play style where guys see them coming off the bench and go, oh, no, th this is a guy that's going to wreck the game. And that's why they're so effective on the bench. They are those super sub kind of roles, and that's where they're effective. So I don't necessarily see the starting lineup changing. I know someone the other night on uh, the double overtime after Duke brought up a great point that if Jim Beheim was coaching this team, Naheem McLeod wouldn't be playing. And I'm sure we would see a, a very different set of players out there on the court but honestly I just do not believe that this rotation either will switch or should switch because like Ethan said there are some things that Autry is taking from Bayheim, and one of them seems to be forming a solidified rotation and yeah he can have different guys come in off the bench in terms of what he does game to game but it's not necessarily going to be different guys in that starting five 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. We're like PTI here. You know, the, the, you'll hear the alarm, but it's a it's a soft alarm. You, you know, if if we go past the alarm, I don't have any. Do you have any flags to wave? I got no flags to wave. I, um, I have. I, have none. I could use a little Tony Kornheiser. Yeah. Um. So if you hear the alarm, <laughs> uh, that means we're going to move on. But, you know, we'll let Hudson finish his point. And because it was an eloquent point and it agreed with my point, then we'll let it we'll let him finish it. Um. So yeah. we'll see what happens with that. Nobody else had that. It sounds like you had something along those lines, Jordan, but maybe not the exact same take. You want to go ahead with, with um, your first take? Sure. I'll I'll go with I'll go with a different one because you brought up the lineup part and I mentioned it a little bit. I think Syracuse needs to move Justin Taylor from the four to the three. It just he's not as effective as he could be at the four if he can play the three. And a lot of the reason why he's been playing the four is because Benny Williams was dealing with his suspension and just kind of issues to start the year. But now that Benny Williams is playing and playing well, like he, he hasn't realized what his role is. And now he is effective for the most part when he's in the game, there's no reason you should be having a six, six guard playing the four in Justin Taylor one, because he can just be more effective last year when he played mostly the three, he shot 39% from deep. This year, just 33%, and he's not shooting it as much because he's not getting those looks based on who is guarding him. When a bigger guy is guarding him, those looks from three-point land don't look as good um, than when he's playing against a guy at the three that might be more even in height size for him. So I think that'll just get more play and better play out of Justin Taylor, especially when you think about this team needs shooters. Chris Bell, when he's not making threes, is not is the is the only other three point shooter that makes it consistently. So if they can get Justin Taylor shooting better from beyond the arc, add that three point um, threat to the actual offense, I think it'll make the offense even better. And also, it just gets Benny Williams more playing time. I think at this point, now that Benny has shown in a couple games that he can play his role in limited minutes imagine what he can do when he's actually on the floor for extended periods of time I think the biggest tell that Benny Williams is back to a player that can really impact the orange is how he's rebounding like he is down there going for boards you couldn't have said that in the first two years when Benny Williams was on the roster he wasn't really down there trying to even get boards now that he's Doing that, I think everything else will start to to come into play. His defense, and then eventually the more minutes and the more comfortable he gets, the offense will come into play. So I think Syracuse needs to move Justin Taylor off the four to the three and put Benny Williams at the four in the starting lineup and just more consistently moving forward. I I got no qualms with that. I I like I I personally I I don't disagree. Um. Because I do think Justin Taylor will be more successful if he's played in a different role. I just, I personally at this, like, this is the only break you're going to get in, in conference play. Otherwise you're playing two games a week, every, the, the entire rest of the season um, up until the ACC tournament in, in mid March. So if you're going to implement a change, this is probably the time to implement a change and I just don't see it happening. And I, you know, I, I was you know thinking about it the other day, like, like of all the players on this team, I'd say Justin Taylor is probably the chief. This guy is not being put in position to succeed in terms of personal. And now that he, like he was doing, he in early in the season, like, you can get away with Justin Taylor being, you know, your leading rebounder when you're playing Cornell or Niagara or Canisius, 
but you can't get away with Justin Taylor in this role against ACC teams. I mean, and just I think, look at it. He played he, yeah. he, at the four against Duke. The guy he was guarding was Kyle Filipowski. I mean, that is just a horrible position to put Justin Taylor in. Yeah. Yeah. And he looked bad while doing it. I, I agree with Jordan and even you on this as well. I think I would like to see Chris Bell be moved to that second unit with the more energy guys. And I would like, now I know this is a bit out of the box, but I'd like him to have more of a, a perspective change on where he can fit in this team because he showed early on against some of the mid-majors and lower schools that he can be that guy to step up against smaller teams. But that's not going to be the case anymore. And if you're not hitting shots, you need a reframe and you need to kind of be challenged in your position in the starting lineup and to know, okay, I can't just go out there and shoot 10 shots, hit 10 of two and still be in the starting lineup the next day like nothing ever happened. Something needs to be shaken up in these next few days, few games, because like you said, Ethan, there's two games a week until you get to that point. And this ties into the first point that I'll make in in my section. But I think once Chance Westry returns and some things kind of get switched up even more, I think Chris Bell's role on the second unit will be solidified, thus moving Benny Williams to the four starting and Justin Taylor officially to the three. Because last year he showed the ability to play the three really well. And if you have a guy out there at all times at the four that can rebound like uh, like Benny and a guy that can rebound at all times at the three, like Justin Taylor, it doesn't matter. Well, it does still matter that Naheem McLeod is seven foot four and cannot rebound the basketball somehow. But even on top of that, it, it doesn't hurt you as much because you have two guys in that starting unit and rebounds incredibly important early in the game. Because if you're letting offensive tip backs in, That'll demoralize you from the jump. So get ahead, use those rebounds to get ahead, and then you can bring in a shooter like Chris Bell. And if he's not working, then you bring in that leash that I mentioned earlier. He's got to have a shorter leash. So a bunch of things really do have to change. I think Chris Bell could be more effective shooting the ball coming off the bench too. Yeah, Just I agree. Like the mindset change, it takes a little bit of pressure off of him. And you talk about how, you know, how effective – what your Copeland and Malik Brown have been coming off the bench partly because they are is because when you're coming off the bench, you're not necessarily on that first page of the scouting report. So if you're not on the first page of the scouting report, then you can kind of take advantage, you know, one game, and then that can give you momentum to take you game after game after game. Yeah. I, I, I think we're remarkably all on the same page here so far. Um, a little under, or, Oh, here comes the buzzer. Um, all right. Hudson, mm-hmm. continue the Ostrom Take Factory. Your first take here in the factory. All of all of mine look down the line. That's the thing. This one is looking less down the line than the other two, which is going to be a little bit crazy here. But as of right now, my first take is that I need to see Chance Westry return soon and see what he can do because all the hype around Chance Westry right now is when they're going to need him with questions of who's going to play at the three and who's going to play at the four. I I don't know if he'll necessarily be the full energy guy. Where is he going to fit into the lineup? And I'd like to figure that out, obviously, sooner rather than later. And I'm sure Autry feels the same way. But I feel that if he shows that he can be capable on a team like this, so many people were vying after Chance Westray. If he shows that he can be capable of getting good minutes on a team like this and producing more than Chris Bell and Justin Taylor, I don't see why he could, couldn't just skyrocket above both of them very quickly. Because Justin Taylor, he hasn't necessarily been put in a position to succeed, 
but he hasn't succeeded. And Chris Bell, outside of a couple games, we keep harping on it, has not succeeded. So seeing Chance Westry get a lot of those minutes on his return back is something that I would like to see very soon. And obviously you don't want to rush his timetable for return, but I, I would like to see that very soon. Hey, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think no matter what, I would think we're all in agreement that Quadir should stay on the bench. I thought uh, on the double overtime after the Pittsburgh game that Jack Gordon made a really good point. Like, not obviously they're not the same player, but comparing him to the Deion Waiters role of like, oh, this guy was the fourth overall pick in the NBA and he did not start a game at Syracuse. Um, and th- that's not to say that is Deion Waiters, but like he he is in the perfect role for him. So I, I would keep him in that role. When it comes to Westry, I feel like it's going to be hard for him to work his way into the starting lineup potentially because I think it's clear that trust is really important to Autry. And, you know, if you look at Benny, for example, I, it seems like we're all in agreement that if we were to make a starting lineup change, that Benny would be the one to be inserted for Chris Bell. And I, I think the reason he isn't is is because of trust. And I think, you know, Chance Westry has to show it. And Benny's played 10 games at this point, and he's still not in the starting lineup. Is Chance Westry going to even play 10 games before the end of the season? Like, we don't know that. I, I don't know if he's practicing. I did see the team just posted some pictures from practice on Instagram. Um, so I will see if he's in any of those pictures uh, on, on the practice floor. But... I, I am worried about that trust factor if he's able to to get, you know, minutes. Yeah, I don't I don't think Chance Westry will be starting at any point this season. Uh, in terms of the trust aspect of it, I, I think it goes more towards the fact that when Chris Bell hasn't been playing well, it hasn't necessarily hurt Syracuse yet. Like I got they, no chance, he, no chance Westry on it. No chance Westry. Just saw no, it. Yeah. no chance. Westry. Chris Bell, when he's not, hasn't been playing well, they still gotten wins. Like they were on a five game winning streak before they lost the Duke. So it really hasn't impacted them negatively in the win loss column. So I think that's more why the starting lineup hasn't been changed as much. Also, you got to remember with Chance Westry, he didn't play all of last year pretty much. So the guy hasn't played basketball in at least a year and a half. So to get you, you have to really acclimate him up before you can trust him, as Ethan said, with with a lot of minutes. I think because of how good he was coming out of high school, I mean, you don't get you just get ranked 32nd overall on ESPN for nothing. So like he, the talent is there. So I think he can help Syracuse. I mean, he just brings even more length with his six six frame as a guard. Kind of can also play the forward a bit. Like mo- probably could be like a Justin Taylor, where he can he can guard bigger players if needed. Um, so I think he'll bring a lot to the floor. I just don't think you can give him that many minutes immediately because he hasn't played basketball in so long. Yeah, that's fair. I guess it just really depends on who he comes back with, and it's. It's also, this is kind of a two-parter that I thought of in my mind, just attack this on the end. I think they need him to play well when he comes back, if they are to make the tournament, whether what whatever role he's in, they need him because they need one other piece on this team at this point, especially. I, yeah, they point. definitely need another piece. Like, they need I, I think like the thing with this team is like, if you think about all of these these players we're talking about, 
Like, Judah is definitely a number one option on a tournament team. But, like, is anyone, would any, would you, on a good team, is anyone else on this team, like, better than a number three option on a good team? Well, I'd ask you, who is the number two? I mean, we, we exactly. Were, we would, like, that's my point. Earlier that's this my, year, we would say Chris my, Bell. Right. That's, that's my point is that, like, this is just based off of what literally what we said, these first three takes. Like, I don't think anyone besides Judah here would be on a good team, like a second weekend team would be better than max a number three option. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem is that when you don't, when you're, when you're playing a Chris Bell or a JJ Starling as a number two scoring option, and then they don't score, you're already trying to get more out of them than they would be on like a good team. And then you're trying to get that little extra more. And then when it doesn't go well, it goes really poorly. So I think Starling can be a two though. He's just, I don't think Starling is necessarily in the perfect position for him to succeed. Like he would be at a school where he is the guy. I don't know if he can be, it's kind of like the starting quarterback thing where, uh Oh, let me get this out real quick. It's kind of like the starting quarterback thing where you're either going to be a starter or nothing because you don't have the ability to be that backup. I think J.J. Starling may be at that point where he's either got to be the man and the starter. It's like Zach Wilson. He's either got to be the man and the starter. I'm not saying he's bad. He's got to be the man and the starter, or he's not going to be anything that really adds to this team, because being the number two option, he's not like a backup guy. Yeah, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Um, I, I, I would like to see a little bit more, but... You know, I, I, I guess, but we'll, we'll see. All right. My second take here, here in the take factory, the DT, this is, this is a DTS certified take. It's numbers time. We put some R and D into this take. Um, I'm going to go to one of my favorite websites, Ken Palm. Syracuse on Ken Palm, as we record, this is 84. Now you would have thought, Ethan, wouldn't Syracuse after that atrocious second half against Duke have dropped a significant amount of spots on Ken Palm because of a 20 point loss. You, you may have thought they would have dropped. They, I think they might have just barely moved up. But like, they stayed yeah. pretty steady on Ken Palm. Mm -hmm. They're 84th. And you would have thought, you know, maybe the defense would have, you know, moved down after Duke went eight for eight from three in the second half. The defense not only didn't go down, it moved up one spot to 58th uh, in the country in defensive efficiency. So my second take is that by the end, by the start of February, Syracuse will be a top 50 defense on Ken Palm. And this is a unit that's steadily improving. Second half first Duke aside. Um, you can go to so many different lineups. There's so much versatility. You can see the rotations are getting to a point where the help defense is there more often than it isn't anymore, where that wasn't the case at the beginning of the season. And if the, if they rebound, they win. Uh, there weren't many rebounds against Duke. Uh, because they were making so many shots in the second half. That was kind of an aberration, but usually if they rebound, they win. Um, here, here are the opponents they have uh, left in January. Boston College is 70th, or was 70th, in, in the their opponent's offensive ranking. Uh, Boston College is 70th. North Carolina is 10th. Then Pittsburgh, who they just beat, is 64th. Then Miami is 28th. Florida State is 150th, NC State is 68th, and BC again, 70th. I don't see any reason against that slate of opponents. Really, your only big tough challenges are North Carolina 
And I would say at Pittsburgh, Miami's been pretty disappointing and you get them at home um, and a home Saturday game in the dome. That's a, a definite edge to Syracuse, especially on the defensive end. So I, I think against this slate of opponents, you get through North Carolina and Pittsburgh, and then the schedule really evens out for you. And you 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 had gotten you played Virginia already, you played Duke already, you played Carolina already, you got both Pittsburgh games out of the way. I think this defense can really rise, especially in in the analytical realm as we get towards February. What defense I don't are mind. they right now, Ethan? 58. 58. I think they'll move up I, eight spots. I don't know how I I don't know how anyone could disagree with you then. I mean, at that point, I don't I, I'm not saying that this is a, a take that doesn't need R and D, but I'm not gonna lie, that kind of <laughs> seems just like a blanket statement take. Yeah, they'll move up eight spots. They played Boston College twice for crying out loud. They play, play Florida, Florida State. State. They play again a Miami team who's got one guy, Wooga Poplar, who can bring your defensive rating down because all he does is hit threes. Everybody else has been disappointing. I mean, I agree with you. I'm not going to say that I don't agree with because I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just don't know how much of a, a take that even is because they move up. They only move up eight spots. Give me a give me like a top. Give me a top 40 or something. I, I looked into it and I said, you know, I don't He's know safe. how many spots they could really move <laughs> up. So, I mean, it's a month. It's a month. Like if you have a really bad game, if you have a really bad game though, you can like North Carolina could score 85 points and they move down to 64th. And then you have to move up 14 spots again in much less time. Uh, Like that's how I was trying to factor that in. And I could see Pittsburgh putting up a lot of points on the road as well. Yeah. I mean, I I don't disagree. It's really more of a, how other teams do in that realm of things in terms of the Kempom stuff. I mean, Syracuse can play great D and not move up because other teams are playing great D too. And they're just playing against lesser opponents. Um, I do think Syracuse can move up to top 50 because at, at some point, I believe Autry is basically going to be frank with this team. And it's like, this team is w- going to win because they're going to play good defense. Like if you look at it, Syracuse's offense in half court, it's not bad. the most potent it's offense. Bad. So bad. It's not. It, There's no I mean, strategy. It, other than Judah Mintz, I mean, I, I'm I'm not very and scared. Malik, and Malik Brown. And Malik well, Brown. and Malik Brown gets everything done for by guards. Let's be real. I and mean, it's not he's, he's not posting yeah, up guys. It, right. Malik, it's a lot right. of it's, it's a, a lot, lot of action. Broader, right. It's Mintz or yeah. Copeland driving. Yes, exactly. So like, there, it's not very. Uh, th- nobody's necessarily very scared against it. So you need to one play great defense to to hold opponents to less than let's say 80 points, even though Syracuse had scored 80 points in five straight games before Duke, but you need to generate offense off of your defense. Syracuse's offense is at its best when it's in the fast break, which is one forcing misses Two also points off of turnovers. Duke destroyed them in points off of turnovers, which was a little bit of an aberration so far this year, but Duke also doesn't turn the ball over, which is an issue, which Duke also doesn't turn the ball over. They average like seven or eight turnovers per game. And Syracuse's defense is at its best when it's rebounding and forcing turnovers. Exactly. So when they're forcing misses and getting turnovers and they're out in transition, one that can generate positive offensive momentum, which can lead to more success in the half court. But two, that's when your offense is at its best when it's out in the fast break, not against the set defense. So I think Adrian Autry is going to really hone in on the defense in the next coming weeks and be like, if we play great defense, that's how we're going to win games because it will positively impact our offense on the other end. Yeah, I can't disagree. Right against the buzzer. Wow. Was it right against the buzzer? 
That was right against the buzzer. All right. Huge. Jordan. Had it in the back take. of my mind. We're moving we're moving along here. Here here yeah. in the OTF. Um, Steady pace. So my second take, I had it as the first take, but then since we we're talking about rotations and stuff, I, I I went to my second take first. And, you know, I, I know you guys are a lot higher on Naheem McLeod than I am. And you you recruited him to be the starter. I don't care Uh-oh. what you recruited him to do. Uh-oh. Like I, I really don't care what you recruited him to do. You recruited Carlos Del Rio Wilson from Florida to play quarterback, who was a four-star. And look what he does. He doesn't play quarterback. He throws the ball to the other team. So, like, you can recruit a guy all you want. But, like, if he's not producing, he's not producing. And Naheem McLeod is not producing. Granted, he's not getting that many minutes which is great because if he was he'd probably be playing even worse but like he has 54 total points this year which is like three a game and he has 60 total rebounds as a seven foot four center in 14 starts that's 4.3 rebounds a game that's ridiculous like he's not doing what he's supposed to be on the floor to do let alone win the opening tip i mean when was the last time syracuse won the opening tip so the fact that he's not not it doesn't, doesn't happen ha- anymore. They don't win the opening so, tip. If he's not getting done what you expected him to do on the floor, then he should not be getting minutes. Where is Munir Hima? Uh, like, he needs to at least, if anything, you don't take all of Nahima Cloud's minutes away at first and you give Munir maybe half of them to see if he was effective. I mean, the three games that Munir has been in, he's played 15 total minutes against Georgetown when Nahim was in foul trouble and dealt with that foot injury. It's not like Munir was bad. Munir actually played fairly well. So unless Munir is hurt and we just don't know about it, where is Munir Hima? Because sure, this guy is seven foot four, great rim protector. I'll give him that. He's top four, I think, in the ACC in blocks. But Munir Hima is six foot eleven and a good defensive player too. And and he gives way more on the offensive side. He has way more touch around the rim, and he's an actual semi-offensive threat comparative to Nahima Cloud. You give him the ball. He brings the ball down, gets it stolen, or he's not even looking to pass out of a double team. So, like, Syracuse needs to come to the realization that you recruited him here to be the starter, sure. But if he's not executing enough to play, then you need to try out Mooney or Hema. And I'll I'll put in Peter Carey there, but I'm not saying Peter Carey should really play. Okay, but Munir Hema needs to at least start yeah, splitting far, the minutes. With it was, it was great, great, great argument. You with, had us. Until you had you, you had Peter us, Carey. and then you and then you just brought okay, Peter. Okay, take Car- out Peter Carey then. Take okay, out Peter we'll Carey. Only Munir. Only Munir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know how much I fully trust Munir though. Like I understand he was good in the in the limited games he played, but like it doesn't really like he doesn't feel like he can hold up for like very long on the basketball court in terms of energy. Um, it seems like he's got but you don't need bo- him to lower body injury issues, which for a tall guy is not good. Um, and then like yes. I just there are some very little things that Naheem McLeod can fix, and then he becomes more effective on offense. What are those little specifically? things? Not not bringing the ball down like that is a, that oh. is coachable. That's so coachable. easier said than done. Like that's, you can't, you that's can't coach. coach a dog into someone though, and he just that's, does that's, not have that. That's that's coachable. Uh, I I thought there was a much better concerted effort that when he came to set a high ball screen against Duke and then rolled to the basket, those guys were looking for him in the paint and were making an effort to find him, which I I think is important because if you're not looking to find him, then he has zero purpose on the court, zero. So if he is on the court, making an effort to get him the ball 
is is crucial to to him having some sort of impact on the offense. How much should they be doing it? I'm not sure, but I do think he has some sort of value if you can continue to coach him up. And I trust them to continue to coach him up because when Jesse Edwards got to Syracuse, he was nothing. Like he was like Naheem right now, but worse. And by the end of his sophomore year, he was making plays in the NCAA tournament to help Syracuse win games on both ends of the floor. And maybe it's just going to take Naheem a little bit more time to become a little bit more effective. I'm willing to give him that longer leash. That's not saying Munir Hima shouldn't get any minutes, but I'm still willing to give Naheem McLeod a few more shots. Well, let's so one thing I want to say, one, one thing I want to say before you jump in is, is this the time though, to be like, we need to continue to teach Naheem. If he couldn't do it in the non-conference play, why are we, why is Syracuse going to continue to give him minutes to see if he can actually do something 15 games in where now you need to win these games to go to the NCAA tournament. Okay. Hudson, you can go. No, I, <laughs> I, I agree. Ethan, you said when, when Jesse got to Syracuse, he wasn't good until the end of his sophomore year. He was starting to put stuff together. Let's ex- extrapolate that on the timeline of Naheem McLeod. He's a junior right now. So by the end of his senior season, he's going to be putting it together a little I, I'm bit not, more. I'm, not, little I'm bit not saying, more? I'm not saying it's, it's an exact comparison. I'm saying that be, I would say by the end of this season, he should have more things put together because he already had two prior years of college experience. I'm just going to say if he's if he's already had two prior years of college experience and this is where he's gotten, then it's going to take a lot more to develop him than Jesse Edwards. You kind of convinced me a little bit, Jordan, because I've been sitting here thinking, wait a second. I know we can't play Monir Hima a full game. Syracuse cannot afford to play Monir Hima a full game. No. But at the same time, let's just at least see a little bit what, he, what he's made of. Because, it again, at this point, if you're not winning the tip and you're seven foot four, my my dad brought up a, a good thing today where we're, we're Torn to all the schools. He used to play basketball at Morehouse, and he played against this guy named George Bell, who was seven foot eight. And I asked hmm. him, "Oh, Dad, where did George Bell go? What whatever happened to George Bell?" He said, "George Bell became a cop because George Bell could not play basketball. He was seven foot eight, and he was just not good. And that is the reality of Naheem McLeod. Is if he was actually good, he's got the frame to be good. But at this point, he's had two years of college experience." plus more now at this point two and a half seasons and he hasn't even come close to putting it together yet i'm not saying take him out entirely but you're right jordan we do need to see moni or hema because what happened to him he's a big guy i've seen him on one of those vo scooters he he can fit <laughs> in an acc he can fit on an acc team and play some maybe serious minutes so i don't know i i do agree with you though jordan one more one more quick stat we're not at Syracuse is not asking him to play a full game. Naheem gets 14 minutes per game. That is not a full game, one. And two, Naheem has one assist in 202 minutes. In 15 minutes for Munir, he has one assist. So Munir can actually help other people score the basketball as well. Yeah, like if, you know, there's an entry pass and a double team comes, then it's four on three the rest of the court. Somebody's going to be open. Uh, You got to be able to find that open man. Malik Brown does a good job of that. All right, Hudson, your third, third take. Okay, no, second I said, take, sorry. Second take, yeah. I said a lot of these are going to be down the line, and that Chance Westry was the least down the line. Here, Here's my second farthest down the line right now. This involves next year, because I, I know I know Ethan may not be looking forward to next year. But I look, Ethan, forward, to, like I look forward to every season of Syracuse and basketball, Hudson. you'll look forward 
to Quadir Copeland and a bigger role next year, where I personally think that this team can genuinely compete with Quadir Copeland next year being the starting point guard of this team. Now, that that is if they bring in a big in the transfer portal and they actually show that that guy can play. But with that being said, I think Quadir Copeland is perfectly suited to make sure that this team is not only a tournament team next year, but a top four team. Because I think n- not everything goes around Quadir Copeland when he's on the court. Everything has to revolve around Judah Mintz when he's on the court, it feels like, because he only he feels like the only scoring option. With the guys growing around Quadir and his ability to be a pass-first guy, I I hope he stays a pass-first guy and Ethan's little just keep shooting threes doesn't fully go to his head like it did in the Duke game where he can you know still move the ball. He hit a three. He hit a three. Don't don't two, say that. Two, okay, two, he hit, hit yeah. He hit two threes. Okay, I understand. Oh, Ethan, you got a whoa. Got some what the hell is that? What in the world is that? No, <laughs> did you see the balloons? I did. What what in the world just happened? <laughs> I think if you do that, you get fireworks too. I accidentally did that in one of our WAER meetings that I was late to, and it was not a good good sign in the entrance. <laughs> but regardless, back to my take. I think Quadir Copeland has this team in a perfect position to compete next season being a starting point guard in the ACC. And I was really worried about that coming into the pit game. And I know it's just a standalone game, but my goodness, he played fantastic in that game. And it showed what he can be down the line. If they put the pieces around him, if they build around Quadir with guys like Malik still being here, Justin Taylor, if Chris Bell can find his shot back, I mean, it's next year, obviously. And I don't want to look too far. So, so, so yeah, let me, let me jump in here. I I think Quadir is only shooting as many threes as he is right now is because he's pl- not playing on the ball all the time. And I think if he, he was playing on the ball more, then he wouldn't be shooting as many threes as he is. But if Judah's in the game, then he has to become a standstill shooter at some points. Because yeah. as we talked about before, this half-court offense is let Judah figure it out and let Judah go do his thing. So I think that's only... He, I think he has to shoot on this team because Judah is going to play 30 plus minutes and he's going to dominate the ball. So you have to surround Judah with people who are not afraid to shoot the basketball. That is why he is shooting um, Hmm. at the volume that he is. And yes, did he take it too far in the Duke game? Probably, but he is showing more and more confidence shooting the ball. And that is important. Even if the percentage is still only under 20%. But I mean, if, if what, Everyone, I, I mean, I, I, you'll probably have, you know, I said this last year that I thought one of the six got freshmen from last year would enter the portal and none of them ended up entering the portal. None of them ended up leaving either when we thought Judah was going to go to the NBA. Um, I think, you know, th- this is stepping on my next year a little bit, but I do think Judah is going to the NBA. Um, and I would be pretty shocked if someone didn't enter the portal from the wing position, whether it's Taylor, Bell, Williams, whoever. Like, I, I would be pretty shocked if one of them didn't enter the portal, considering your two freshmen coming in next year are both also wings. So, I, I like... Well, Elijah is, Moore is a shooting Elijah guard. Moore is a shooting guard. Yeah, but he's and almost 6'6". Six, six. Like, he's a wing. But like he's he, going to play a guard spot. So, would you count Would you count Chance Westry a wing? Yes, I would. Yeah, um, I'd say Chance Westry is a wing. That's more of his place. He's listed as a guard. I, if you're I not a point guard to me, you're a wing. Okay, thank you for uh, that's, that's now that definition fair. makes a little bit more sense. That's my yeah. my. If right, you're not if you're not on the ball, you're a wing. You're playing. That's fair. 
So, uh, you yeah. know, actually looking at your, the way you compared it to Quadir when he's on the floor with Judah, I never actually thought of it like that. That's a good point. Um, now, granted, he doesn't have to take, you know, the amount that he did necessarily. Um, going back to Hudson's point, I just still think he needs more of a jumper if he's going to be able to lead the team next year. Because, like, you look at Judah, the reason why he's more effective, yeah, he can get to the rim, but he still has a mid-range jumper. And, I mean, Quartier and Judah basically have the same. I'm going to counter this that point, point with, I'm going to counter that point with my next take. Yeah, okay. At, at the same, at, at this point, I, I have enough faith. I have as much faith as Quadir making a three than than Judah, just because Judah doesn't take as many, and Quadir has started to look decent at it. Um, but like, he still needs a jumper if he wants to actually be a true point guard guard that can lead an ACC team. Because if he doesn't, then they're gonna sag guard. They're gonna sag off of him like they would do against like a Ben Simmons, and like, okay, you can drive, but like, we'll cut off your angle, and then what are you gonna do? I think he does have enough of that jumper, not proven yet enough, but in his skill set, if he has to, I think he can be that guy. Yeah. I, I, it is tantalizing to think about a quadrier Copeland led team. I mean, that is, <laughs> that is one of the better thoughts I've ever thought. Um, well, to I'm be fair, even if quadrier was the point guard, it would definitely not be a quadrier led team. It'd probably be yeah. Donnie Freeman. <laughs> but... Well, exactly. It would be a somebody else led team that runs that the through point Quadir. runs through Quadir, and that's why it would be better because it it wouldn't it would be a more dynamic offense. It wouldn't be okay. Just let Judah go chuck something up. We might have plays. We might have plays <laughs> drawn up next year. Can you think about that? I, it feels like it feels like uh, I and I talked about this with Mike Waters a few weeks ago. Just at at a game like if if you think back to the 2012 2013 team when Mike or, Michael Carter Williams was the point guard. Like he wasn't scoring exorbitant amounts. You had Brandon Trish at the t- uh, playing, you know, in the backcourt with him. You had CJ Fair scoring. You had James Sutherland scoring. You had a freshman Jeremy Grant on that team. You had a center in Raheem Christmas who could score. That if he is playing that role, I know they're not exactly the same players, but they yes. are similar in a lot of ways in terms of height, length, uh, and playmaking ability. If he can play the role in like. Oh, our next, if Quadier's a point, like, for example, if Quadier's a point guard on next year's team, all you, you don't, you, 10 points is all you need from him. If you have Absolutely. scores, or if you have scores around him, like if JJ comes back well, and you have him around him, if you have three different wing options around him, if you have a Malik Brown that can, you know, Malik Brown's almost at 10 points a game now after scoring 26 against Duke on Tuesday, Hudson's boy. Well, but, and if you look at the if you look at the way that Quadir and Judah and JJ they're really good at getting downhill into the tent into the cup. Imagine how much better they'd be if they'd had a physical center that could actually set those screens and roll to the basket. Like Malik Brown can do that, and that's why I think the offense is better when he's in the game. But that's another reason why, going back to my point, Munir should play a little bit more because when Naheem sets those screens, he's not a threat rolling to the basket. I know, I know they looked for him, but like there's no threat. It's not even like there, there's no lob dunk threat, which is just crazy. Like if you're a center and there's no lob, like Malik threat, probably had when... six dunks against Duke. Exactly. Yeah. Like if Naheem can't, like that's another reason why I think the, the Munir needs to play a little bit more because if he can't do that, then like he's just an object on offense. If you and now Malik, Brown, Malik Brown, and now Malik Brown's a stretch five. He's 40% from three. Is. I mean, he <laughs> is. I, I'm not going to admit, but he is. If you put Malik Brown in Naheem McLeod's body, he'd be the number one overall pick. He just wouldn't. Like, <laughs> exactly. Like, what, like, what, exactly, Victor Wimbanyama? He would be Zach Wimbanyama. 
He would be thick when Benyama. Uh, okay, <laughs> we're getting, now we're getting off the rails. Malik, <laughs> we got to put that on a quote board. If Malik Brown was in Naheem McLeod's body, he'd be Victor Wembenyama. He'd be thick uh, Wembenyama. Thick Wembenyama. Right. <laughs> going to need to write that one down. Um, all right, we're into the final round of takes here on the Ostrom Take Factory. And as always, the Ostrom Avenue podcast brought to you by Empire Hearing and Audiology. We thank them for their support of, of the Take Factory and all of our manufacturing that we've done here here for this episode of the show. My final take, I was alluding to it. It's about Judah. And uh, th- this will be tough for, to listen to for some people. I think Judah, I, I think we all, he's going to go to the draft after this season. I don't think he's getting picked. I think Judah's going to leave and I think he's going undrafted. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, do NBA teams really want a ball dominant small guard? Like, is that a player? How much does that player contribute to winning if they're not an absolute super duper star? Uh, that's that's more of an NBA thing than it is like a, a Judah personal thing. I mean, this year, I it's it's kind there have been like games where it's hard to watch him because of how much he complains if he doesn't get a call and then doesn't get back on defense and and just kind of like whines to the officials when things don't go his way on top of turning the ball over a decent amount um and and these stupid defensive gambles that he takes piss me off to no end and i see it people talking about it all the time on twitter why does he take these gambles around midcourt and then it sets up a five on four for the other team going the other way where he reaches or he tries to wrap around and tip the ball away or something. All of these little things I, I think add up. And then it's about the three point shot. Jay Williams was talking about it on the TV broadcast that he, he like move his right foot is pointed horizontal and his elbows too far in. And it puts a weird side spin on the ball. And I know he's still a 36% shooter, but I don't trust those numbers to keep up. I I just think he picks and chooses his spots too much. And if he's, you know, a second round pick in the NBA or he goes undrafted, like how much is he willing to compete for playing time rather than he's been the best player on the court or on his team for his entire basketball life? Um, These are a lot of things I'm thinking about. I got some numbers for you. What do you think are non layups or dunks? On two pointers, what do you think Judaman shoots? So non layups or dunks. What do you think his shooting percentage is? Twenty six percent. Twenty four. Twenty four percent. He shoots twenty four percent on two pointers that are not layups or dunks. So that'd be floaters, mid range. Like that is bad. That is yeah. really bad. He has a thirty one over thirty one percent usage rate on this team which I think does contribute to to like doing too much sometimes and and some of these little things. But I think there are too many of these things that add up that don't contribute to winning and then translating that to the professional game. I'm not sure how well his game translates. Like the player I think of that comes to mind is like a Jordan Clarkson for, for yeah. Judah Mintz is like the first comparison that comes to mind. Like you can find... Like there are people like that. Like that's not a unique basketball player. And I, I just, I see that as kind of the ceiling at this point. I don't mind but that. Sure. Like I, I could see it. I could see it happening. I just think uh, he'll get picked in the later second round. I mean, the stat you brought up in terms of the non layups or dunks, pretty uh, incriminating right there. 
Um, I didn't know that. But I, he, he just has enough, I think, athletic ability. I mean, you, you say he's small. He's 6'4". It's not terribly small. I mean, it's not, not like the NBA. Obviously, it's bigger. Today. But, like, he's, it's, he's not – and he's skinny. He's like skinny. He, he, That's he's the problem. Yeah. He's I mean, he can, he's, 20, he's like 20 years old. He can still add, add that. I think – I think an NBA team would be willing to take, I mean, you get to the end of the second round, like because there's not that many picks, you're more willing to take chances on guys. So like the fact that he can get to the rim as, as well as he and does drives, shoots the right. free throw. Well, yeah, like his free throw rates close to 70%. N- I think, <laughs> yes. I, I think an NBA team would be willing to take a risk and say, we can fix his three point shot. Cause if he shot the three, well, like a Chris, maybe not like a Chris Bell, but like the percentage of what Chris Bell shot last year, let's say, then that that would make him a completely different player. So I think a team would be willing to take a chance on him to develop that three point shot because that would really change the right, his like, game overall. You're saying like a team would take him in the second round though. Like late. if you're taking a a, a chance yeah. on someone in the late second round, why wouldn't you take a chance on someone that's like six eight or six ten? Which like, is true. So- I think well, I mean, there's a mock draft that has him at 38 right now. Where's that from? Tankathon.com. My, my, yeah, come on, come, great, on. come on, come on, let's go come with on. serious. Yeah, let's show go. your work. Yeah, come on. Uh, yeah, show me. Yeah, show you. I don't know where your take was. I just Google it real quick. I, I, I think what Jordan said about him being like a back end second round, I do like because some of the stuff is fixable. You're right. He is 20 years old. I don't even know if he's 20. He's probably 20. He's 20 years old. If he puts on muscle in these NBA level gyms with these nutrition programs and athletic programs and everything that they have, he can be a lot better. This is this is a crazy take. And by no means am I saying that he is this player, but he is in every way just a worse John Moran. In every way. Less athletic. Can shoot he turns a little 21 bit less. in July. He turns 21, turns 21 in, July. in July. July birthday. Shout out. He, in every single way, he is just a worse John Morant. The thing about John Morant is he is basically one of one right now in the NBA. He is, because guys like that, if if Judah was doing this in 2009, everyone would go, oh, my God, oh, my God, put him, put him in the lottery. Judah needs to be in the lottery in 2009. But the game has really passed his style by a little bit. Guys that drive to the rim all the time but can't hit their free throws, Guys that are ball dominant guards that aren't looking to, for like too many outlet passes, guys like that, which is what Judah is, aren't sticking around in the NBA anymore. That's just a fact. They were fun back in the day, but now where you have to have an NBA body to play in the NBA. Guys right now that are coming out, have you seen Scoot Henderson? What Scoot Henderson looks like? He's coming out as a guard with an NBA body. You need that right now to play point guard. Not only is he 6'3", so he's just a little bit undersized for what the point guard has become. He, you're right, he's skinny. He looks like me. I mean, honestly, I I mean, if you put me out there in the NBA court, I'd be terrified because of my size. So you have that as a disadvantage. You have his play style as a disadvantage. I think because of his production, he'll still get picked. It's a guy like Luca Garza a couple of years ago where you know he's just a college player you know he'll only be good in college and it's really tough to translate any of those skills to the nba but you still got to take a flyer on him because who knows maybe he can translate translate that to the nba all things say not necessarily but i still think there's a chance and i guarantee you there's an nba team that with one of the last 
10 to 15 picks, we'll say, okay, yeah, there is a chance of something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the interesting thing about the NBA yeah. draft is they do tend to pick based on, you know, size more than you know, proven results. I mean, Luca Garza was a player of the year and didn't yeah. I don't know if he got he maybe got picked in the I, late second I, round, but he's not yeah. in the NBA, that's for sure. I think that same <laughs> draft Patrick athletic. Williams, my Bulls picked Patrick Williams, who mm. never started a yeah. game in college right. basketball and exactly. ever. Exactly. Right. So it's a lot about size and body, which yeah. it is exactly right. the time the timer has gone off. Go ahead. I'll Jordan. move on to my my final point, and it goes more towards rotation-ish, kind of. And I think Kyle Cuff needs to get more minutes on on this team more consistently because I think he brings actual value that isn't cashed in enough because there's a longer leash on a Chris Bell because of his height and his, and his prowess in high school and the fact that he was there last year. Kyle Cuff, I mean, granted, limited sample size, shoots 37% from three-point range. That is just as good as Chris Bell does. Granted, he plays somewhat of a different position in being a shooting guard rather than a small forward position, but you need to let him be a shooter. I mean, the problem, the main problem with this team on offense is they don't have enough shooters that shoot consistently. I mean, if, if this team had three shooters that shot the ball 37 to 40% from three, they'd be a completely different team. So giving Kyle Cuff more minutes will allow him to actually shoot threes. If you look at it, one of his best, one of his better games, if you don't include Chaminade, was against Oregon. He played 14 minutes. He actually scored eight points and two of three from downtown. He, I think, he led the team at half in terms of points because he got an extended run and was actually allowed him to gain some momentum to actually play well. Also, he plays defense. Like you go against these teams that have point guards like a Tyrese Proctor, granted he's a little bit undersized comparative to Proctor, but like a Wuga Poplar, it's a perfect matchup. Like he can guard a smaller guard very well. And you look at Chris Bell, if he doesn't make a three, he's not playing defense. Like as much as we love Chris Bell, like his offensive game impacts the way he plays on defense. And Kyle Cuffs does not. If you look at Chris Bell, he's hit one or fewer threes this year when hitting it, he has not cracked double figures. So if he's not hitting from three, he's not contributing on offense. You're basically relying on him to make a three per game. And if you look at it, six of the last seven games for Chris Bell has hit one or fewer threes. That one game where he did was Cornell and he scored 19 points, 15 of them from three. So you're really relying on Chris Bell to make more than one three per game. So if you're relying on that and he's not doing it, especially against better competition, give Kyle Cuff some run so we can actually develop into a player. There's a reason he got recruited to Kansas. As much as you know, he didn't play at Kansas partly because of injuries, there's a reason he got recruited to Kansas. So let him get more of an extended run, get momentum so he can actually help this team because playing five minutes a game, Kyle Cuff's not going to bring as that much value. I think it's like comparing apples to oranges in a little bit of a way, though, where you have Kyle Cuff, and yeah, he's a good shooter, but when you put him out there, it is a size thing. Against the mid-majors, he lines up perfectly size-wise. It says he's 6'2". I would be hard-pressed to believe He probably that. is the highest vertical on the team. What's the difference thing? between he that and a good vertical? What, what's the um, – and obviously it's comparing Joe Girard, who was a lethal three-point shooter. But, like, yeah. you played Joe Girard a lot last year, and he's about the same height. I didn't. Nec- I didn't I think, ever say I think, that Joe I think, Girard should have played as much as I, he should I think, have last. Right. Year. I think. I think the thing with with Cuff is he works in lineups where he's the second. Like he can't be in a lineup where both Judah and JJ are on the floor. 
Like one of them has to be off the floor. And you like if I, he'd be perfect in a lineup with Quadir in the game because he could stand on the three point line and move around there. Um, and but Quadir could guard the guy who's playing the exa- three. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. But then you also probably need be- like you need him as part of the bench unit, and could like, be a go small unit. Go small, go fast. Of a very specific unit, right? He, I right, think exactly. Is also part like of the he, problem. right? He, he, he feels like a square, square peg trying to fit in a round hole. Uh, with the with the making of this roster and I think that's where the challenge is in finding minutes for him that his size really really hurts because you have two guards that play on the ball that are just like a little bit taller than him and if you bring him on the floor to play with them that hurts your defense a lot well, it hasn't been proven, though, is my thing. It's like, why not try it? If you're so determined on making it work with Naheem McLeod, and I know it's a little, it's a different because Naheem McLeod's 7'4", and he brings an element that the team doesn't have if he's not on the floor. They don't have a 7-footer. But, like, if you're so determined on making Naheem McLeod work, why not be determined at least to see if Kyle Cuff can bring something if you play him double-digit minutes? When he's played double-digit minutes, those have been his best games where he scored double digits against Shamanad. Yes, it's Shamanad. But where he scored and Quadir Copeland almost had a triple double against Shamanad. And when I said okay, that, I got okay. You. I'm <laughs> you, just you saying when he plays, can't you? I, I said to help I, your argument, but you I can't, did. You I, I said I I said it, and I was like, okay, it was Shamanad. Like I did discount it. But when he plays double digit minutes, is when he actually brings value. Otherwise, like if he's not, then why play him at all? I think it's a thing. fine idea, but when. Like when would something like this happen? Because at this point, maybe Miami is a good matchup because Miami doesn't have a yeah. lot of size. Like Miami is a good matchup. Even North Carolina with R.J. Davis. I mean, he's not a tall guard. Uh, Pittsburgh's not as great of a matchup because their guards are six four, six five. Exactly. But it's games against guards that are like six two, six three. Like it doesn't have to be smaller than him. It just has to be close enough in size where yeah. he can guard them effectively. I would be fine if Naheem McLeod played zero minutes against Miami and Kyle Cuff got some of Naheem McLeod's minutes with Benny Williams and Malik Brown being that four or five rotation providing that size. I would be completely fine with that. But other than that, outside of that game, I don't really see a whole lot of spots where Kyle Cuff fits in. Again, he's the square peg in the round hole. And no matter how well he can shoot, I just don't fully believe in him being a piece for this team going forward. I, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a bit difficult to find. All right, Hudson, give us, give us your final take and then we'll wrap things up. All right. This one, this one is concise. I think you've got four minutes. I've got four minutes. Okay, perfect. After this Duke game, I've come to the realization I've become enlightened that as much as Syracuse may not want to hear this, I think you might have to have Adam Weitzman to compete in the ACC nowadays. I think that's just the reality of it, that you can't not have someone like a big booster or have a lot of pull and a lot of money to go up against a school like Duke because in the reality of it, Duke was just a better team. They are. And this is not one of Duke's like strongest classes. This is They've got some good players on this team, but they're only going to get better as years go on. Duke is only going to return back to that mountaintop. North Carolina is only going to return back to that mountaintop. And right now, Miami's been a little disappointing, but Miami's solid, and they're starting to recruit well. Georgia Tech is on the rise. You can't get caught in that shuffle. It's it's coaching as well. And Syracuse has a solid recruiting class coming in, 
but it's still seventh right now in the ACC. It goes Duke with four five stars, North Carolina, Miami. That's just Duke. Georgia like Tech. that's just Duke. That's Duke. That's Duke. But I that's think Duke because a lot of in, their players leave. I think it's in regards of though that Syracuse fans have. It's to live up to the expectation of Syracuse fans. You need Adam Weitzman. Syracuse fans seem to have this expectation that you can get whoever and whoever is coaching will coach them well enough where they can be in a position to win a national championship. That day is gone. I don't care how good Adrian Autry is. That day is fully gone. In the era of NIL, you're going to have to pay these guys a lot of money or become a very attractive school in the way that you play basketball. I think they're on a good trajectory now. But I think this cycle, after this cycle, I don't really see, you know, them sustaining this down the pipeline because they got lucky with hitting on three stars like Malik Brown, who's a three star and ended up being fantastic. Justin Taylor was a four star, but he was a little bit overlooked. He ended up being better than a lot of people thought. They've got a good class coming in now, but to compete against a school like Duke, where Syracuse is like, oh, we got a chance here. We have a chance. And then you lose by 20. You need guys like Adam Weitzman at your back. It may so, be a little out yeah. of line. But. So, so I, I agree with you. I think I think when looking at recruiting rankings, though, you have to wait until you add via the portal, and then you look at the holistic composite rankings because I, I think only looking at high school is a little bit flawed based on the way this era of college athletics is, and I, that's why I only look at the composite ranking. I think football is a little bit different um, Yeah, because – it's a. I feel like it's a lot harder to prove how good you are in football until you play in college football. It's pretty clear in basketball that, that like how good you are in high school is is a because certain players have more impact. Is, is a it is a much easier translation to college basketball from high school and and AAU basketball than it is from high school football to to the college football. football. So. Yeah. I think you need to still, even despite that, you still need to look at the holistic rankings to be like, oh, this is where Syracuse is. But I, I don't disagree with your take. Like, obviously, I'm not going to say no. They don't need another big booster, but I'm not sure how big of, of a deal it is as your argument makes it out to be. Yeah, the one thing I'll add to that is in terms of needing big boosters and partly because I'm a Rutgers fan, but like you look at it, Rutgers got number two and three, and they don't have an Adam, Adam at least publicly, have an Adam Weitzman. It's not like Ace Bailey and Dylan Harper are getting a million dollars each to go play for Rutgers. They might. And Rutgers might is less be. of a... They might be. I, I, don't think, I don't think so, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. But like if Rutgers can get the number two and three players in the country, I think Syracuse can as well. Like Adrian Autry... Uh, love Steve Peichel. He's a very established coach, but I think it's a little bit more attractive. It's it. I think they're comparable in where they're both attractive to play for, given the his, given well, Syracuse has a better history, but given the current state of college basketball. Yeah, I, Dylan Harper. If you look at it, though, number two recruit in the country, he was going to go to Rutgers. I, I don't see him going anywhere else. Well, partly because his brother and went, his brother but, went to Rutgers, and his but the fact that Rutgers got a, a five star number East two rec- number three recruit out of Georgia. One. Ace Bailey is an interesting one, but I think it's also, you know, Rutgers isn't necessarily an attractive place to be. No offense to Piscataway, or is that where I think so? Yeah, it's not necessarily an attractive place to be, but I think in the modern landscape of college basketball, Syracuse isn't an attractive place to be either. So Rutgers is going to hit on a guy occasionally, and if, you know, Ace Bailey knows, um, if Ace Bailey knows Dylan Harper, that's obviously going to help kind of build. Well, Ace committed first. That is true. He did. 
but at uh, the yeah, same this time, is just a great way to wrap up the Ostrom team yeah. factory by talking it's about Rutgers basketball. Rutgers recruiting. basketball. Uh, you don't uh, want me to bring up Northwestern. Yeah, basketball, and we're going to stick really with only one though. Big Ten program on the show today. Uh, <laughs> well, I hope I hope everyone enjoyed this. I thought it was a success. There's the, there's the flag. I thought it was a success. Uh, we'll be doing this more often. We'll make some adjustments to it. We'll come back with more takes. We'll check in on old takes. Um, and, and we'll continue to have a lot of fun with this coming up, you know, a little, uh, podcast schedule ahead. We'll, we'll be back on the interview, uh, circuit next week. Uh, you know, we, we did our alum series that's done. The holidays are over. We're back on a regimented interview schedule. Um, and we'll be getting you insight on who Syracuse is playing and who they have played, uh, in the coming weeks as this ACC slate really kicks into high gear. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Make sure you follow us on social media at Ostrom Avenue pod and check out the Ostrom Avenue podcast, YouTube channel as well. And be sure to follow all of W eight years coverage of Syracuse men's basketball and a big broadcast next week of Syracuse women's basketball. One of two women's basketball games we'll have on the W eight year airwaves this season, that's Thursday coverage starting at 11 a.m. and going all the way up until 3 p.m. after game. I'll actually be there on the call for that game in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, number 25 Syracuse at Wake Forest. Follow WAER on Twitter at WAER Sports and at WAER Sports Talk. And make sure you check out the website, WAER.org, for all sorts of content, sports and news and podcast related. Literally whatever you want. It's on WAR.org. So for Jordan and Hudson, I'm Ethan. Happy New Year and so long. We'll see you next week.